pray again. We're just going to come. We're, we're just doing a little series um, on the cross of Jesus Christ. We're leading up into next Sunday morning, of course, the resurrection. I'm not going to steal up too much thunder from that, but I think you know what's coming, um, which is good. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for a chance to gather, Lord. And Father, we pray as we come to your word. Lord, as we look at the cross of Jesus, Lord, that you would... Lord, just do a deep work in our hearts, we pray. Lord, lead us, we pray, by your Spirit, Lord, that you would uh, just take the words that I have prepared, Lord, the thoughts, and Father, may they, Lord, may they change our hearts as we respond to you, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You know, I guess there are a few things in the Bible that raise emotions like the cross of, of Jesus Christ. For some, well, it's life-changing. For others, actually, it's just sheer stupidity. And you can talk about God, you can talk about spirituality, but once you mention the cross of Jesus Christ, you are always going to get a reaction. Without the death of Jesus, there is no resurrection, and therefore there is no hope for this world. And over the last few weeks, we have already heard how the cross of Jesus displays this infinite love of God. In fact, it ultimately reveals the glory of God. In fact, nowhere else do we see God's glory, God's love come together in such a most dramatic form than at the cross of Jesus Christ. But it's also life-changing. We heard that two weeks ago. We are new creations. That's our identity. That's who we are in Christ. And by faith, you are transformed by the blood of Jesus. You are redeemed, you're brought near, you're given access to the greatest power of this universe where once you were dead, now you're alive in Christ. Where once you were blind, now you can see. Where once you were lost, now you're found. You're citizens of heaven with a heavenly inheritance. You're adopted as a son, as a daughter of the King of Kings. And then also last week we heard, as Paul shared, we are reconciled to God. Listen, the impossible has happened. Through Christ, you can have peace with God. Jesus' death on the cross has firmly established this incredible, life-changing, chain-breaking reality that we live under every single day by faith. We are forgiven. We have redemption. We have justification. We have reconciliation. So this morning, as we pick up where Paul left off last week, that's both Paul Jackson, who was speaking last week, and actually the Apostle Paul, who wrote it in the first place. Um, convenient, I must admit. Um, as we, 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 we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Now, in many ways, this verse perhaps explains and holds together the whole of this passage we've been looking at over the last three weeks. It explains how two sides with irreconcilable differences are brought together, how they are reconciled. But to put it another way, it shows how Jesus' death on the cross can make you a new person. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sakes, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll read again because it's pretty good. For our sakes, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And to understand this verse, we need to first of all, I guess, define sin. And here we get a problem. Because most of us have become quite desensitized to sin. So that sinners are really only murderers or rapists or child abusers. So, so if you don't tick any of those boxes, we're probably feeling we're, we're okay. The reality is we're all liars and cheats and gossipers. And, and most of us love to gossip, don't we? Sometimes we put it in as, as prayer requests. But we, we just love to pass on little snippets of information. But in our minds, it's no longer sinful or even destructive. It's just useful, well, useful information being passed on. And lies, well, that's just self-protection. Cheating and deception, that's essential qualities for promotion within the workplace. And, and we can easily convince ourselves that sin is not really sin. And it's outdated. It's, we redefine it sometimes. In fact, very often in our heads, we redefine sin something like this, that sin is not really sin unless you get caught. Anybody with children knows this. How often have you looked into your child's eyes after you've told them off for doing something wrong, only to discover that all the tears, all the sorries, are not because they've disobeyed you, but because you've caught them. When we grew up on a farm, I've got a twin brother. I've probably told this story before. Apologies if you heard it before, but I've got a twin brother. We, everything in our life was competition when we were about six or seven years old. And we used to, used to play a lot of time out in the farmyard, but there's a really long way between the house and back into the toilet. So rather than running all that way back to the house, we would just wee up against the wall. I'm not proud of it. We just, that's just what we did, okay? So, but as I said, everything was a little bit of a competition. So we would see who could wee the highest up the wall. So you've you got to get this. It's all about getting the right angles. It's very mathematical. Got to take wind conditions into account. The last thing you wanted was backsplash. Nobody likes that. But the most important thing in our mind was making sure that nobody saw us. Because in our mind, what we're doing is perfectly normal, it's perfectly acceptable, as long as we don't get caught. In fact, many Christians have this sort of childish view when it comes to sin. You think sins are okay as long as we don't get caught. So, we need to go back, we need to re-examine, we need to look at what is the biblical definition of sin. So I want you to go back with me to the Garden of Eden. This is where the gospel story begins, to the moment when sin enters into this world. See, when God created man, there was no sin in this world. It was perfect, there was no sickness, there was no pain. But when, when Satan slithered up to Eve in the form of a snake and lied to her, and then she in turn to Adam, we see the first act of rebellion against God. Genesis 3 verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, you, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil and Satan here just tells sort of a half-truth. It's deception. It's the lies of Satan going on. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
she took off its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. Note, who was with her? And he ate. And both Adam and Eve doubted God. They believed the lie of Satan. Can you really trust God? Can you? And this led to disobedience. You see, sin is always very attractive at first. It looks very pleasing to the eye, but ultimately it leads us down a road that leads to destruction. And when God confronted them, remember what they did? Well, they blamed somebody else. Somebody else's fault. And actually, things haven't changed very much, have they? I guess, you know, once we get caught, often the first thing we think about doing is just blaming somebody else. And if it's not our politicians, it's our parents. If it's not our upbringing, it's our environment or our education system. And if all else fails, we blame God. It's his fault. It's always somebody else's fault. So we run up a huge credit card bill, and it's not my fault. It's the bank's fault. Or if we, we drink too much, it's not my fault. It's my mates. It's my friends. They led me on. And we blame somebody else, and we excuse sin. Adam blamed his wife, Eve. But what was Adam doing in all of this? He witnessed the whole thing. That's what it tells us in Genesis. He was there. He saw the whole thing unfolding before his eyes, and he did nothing. He chose to do nothing, and the great sin of Adam is doing nothing And our world is falling apart sometimes because we are doing nothing. We watch the gospel being trampled on and we do nothing. And doing nothing is as much a sin as willful disobedience of God. In fact, the sin of omission is very often our biggest problem. And listen, particularly for us men, I think we're probably more guilty of this than anyone else. So we turn a blind eye to the sin that goes on all around us. We, our country, listen, needs men to walk with Jesus, to lead their families well, who will set a moral and spiritual example. So where are the men and women who will live according to the Word of God, who will be filled with the Spirit of God, who will be praying? The truth is that many of us are doing nothing. We truly are sons of Adam. In essence, we're saying what Adam and Eve were saying, well, you listen, I'm okay. I'm going to do it my way. I don't want to do it God's way. And God will give you exactly what you want. He will leave you alone. Just as God left Adam and Eve alone, he cut them off. They had to leave the garden. The effect of their sin and the effect of their rebellion was pain. It was sickness. It was ultimately death. And listen, we have all messed up. If we're truly honest with ourselves. In fact, the Bible tells us in Isaiah that even the very best thing that we do, our good deeds, our charity work, our recycling, our religious activity, doing the very best that we can. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says that all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. That little phrase is often translated as menstrual rags, as tampons. And God looked at the very best that you can do as no better than used tampons. Now you say, I can't say that in church. That's, that's a bit disgusting. Listen, 
I do my very best. I, I try as hard as I can. I give to charity. I treat people well. I'm a good person at heart. Listen, this does not work with God. God is pure. God is holy. God is without sin. Sin not, cannot be in his presence. Let me put it like this. See, even the thought that you think that you are good enough is motivated by pride. And pride is a polluted garment. And I want you to face facts. We are all sinners. Every single one of us. First John 1 verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm okay. Listen, you are deceived. And that deception is demonic in nature. You need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus Christ. And for some of you, there is blatant sinning going on. For others, it's a religious attitude that's full of pride and arrogance. And whether this is religious sin or whether it is the sin of omission, you need to start talking to Jesus. To ask him to send his Holy Spirit to open your eyes to the true condition of your heart. See, the problem of sin has not gone away. We are all rebels. Romans 3 verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the condition of all of our hearts. And the big problem is this. Our God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is the God Most High. He is the possessor of the heavens and the earth. He is the everlasting God. He is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. He is the God, the Lord of Lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. He is the Holy One. He is worthy to receive all glory and honor and power creator of all things in him all things exist and were created that is our God that is the God that we stand before he is the one we worship he is the one that we are answerable to every single one of us and here is the problem God hates sin he cannot simply ignore it. He cannot turn a blind eye to it. God must judge sin and justice must be done. And God looks on our sin and sin must be punished. And that punishment has not changed since the days of Adam and Eve. It is separation from God and it is death. But in our warped view in our minds, it means that we believe that we deserve something else, something different other than the wrath of a just God. And we have got no right to think like this. Instead, this is what we should be thinking. We should be thinking, why am I here today? How on earth can a holy and a righteous God, knowing what I did, what I thought, what I said yesterday, not have killed me in my sleep last night? Why has he not destroyed each and every one of us? Why, oh why, oh why, God, do you hold back your judgment from us? And if I was to stop there, we have no hope. But I'm not going to stop there. Because then we read Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God showed his love for us. 
that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And even as sin entered into this world, God's rescue plan is already unfolding. And God is not caught off guard. Just as Adam and Eve disobeyed, it's no surprise to an all-knowing sovereign God. It wasn't as if God turned to Jesus while Adam and Eve are munching on their apples and said, I didn't see that one coming. What am I going to do now? Listen, this is not plan B. There was no plan B. There never will be a plan B. Before the creation of this world, before time began, God in the form of man entered into this world. As we read through the Old Testament, all the clues, all the prophecies are pointing towards Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is fully God and yet fully man, He was tempted just as we are. He faced the same difficulties that each and every one of you face. Hebrews 4, verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And the way that, God, the way that Jesus chose to live like us without sin was to be continually filled during his earthly ministry through his walk on this world in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit. The sinless Jesus then willingly was tortured. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was shamed. He went to a cross, he was crucified, and he suffered the most excruciating sinful death. But what happened on that cross was the most amazing and yet glorious event of all of the world's history. God made Jesus to be sin. It was the most mysterious and agonizing transaction. The sin and the filth of our lives was somehow placed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He experienced the pain and the shame of being a sinner and the judgment of his heavenly Father. On the sinless Son of God was heaped the evils and the injustices of this world. All of our sins, past, present, and future. So when God looked on his Son on that cross, he saw not his Son, but your sin. And in that moment, God's wrath was poured out, and Jesus took the full force of God's judgment. The punishment that you deserved was taken by Jesus. It was the great exchange, this ultimate substitution. And what happened on that cross in this most amazing way was how Jesus, he put on your sinful identity and dealt with your sins in Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Then this incredible exchange takes place. A two-way swap. Jesus receives your sins and you are given his righteousness. You don't deserve it. In fact, you cannot even earn it. It is by faith alone in Christ alone. Listen, if you are in Christ, God no longer sees the self-seeking liar that I am. But he sees me as though I am full of Jesus' grace and truth. He no longer sees the anger, my hatred. He welcomes me as a devoted son. He no longer deals with my falseless idolatry. He's dealt with all of that on the cross. 
He sees the love and the compassion of the Lord Jesus. In Christ, I am accepted, I am loved, I am a forgiven sinner. Jesus on the cross has dealt with all of our sins, past, present, and future. His resurrection is proof of his victory over sin and death. So when we accept Jesus Christ into our life as the only solution of the sin problem, when we repent of our sins, when we turn from our way of thinking and we turn to Jesus' way of thinking, we submit our lives to him, God looks on you and he sees Jesus. But why did he do it? You see, there was no other way. Justice had to be done. But the thing that blows my mind about this little verse is those first three words of 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 21 says, for our sake. See, this is no cold, formal transaction. This is an act of outrageous, powerful love. Love for a lost humanity that is so strong that put the love of a father for a son and the son for a father to the ultimate test. He did it for you and he did it for me. Without Jesus, we are lost, we are condemned, we do not stand a chance. Your future will be an eternity of separation from God. It's death, it's never-ending hell. But by faith, by grace, by resurrection power, you are part of the single worldwide family of faith. All that you need to do is believe. You put your trust in Jesus. Come to him. Listen, if you are a Christian this morning, allow this wonderful truth of the cross of Jesus to saturate your mind. Let it affect how you live. You know, there are people around today, some of them even in our, in our pulpits, who will question if the Bible is absolutely true. They deny the resurrection. They even claim that Jesus is just one of many ways to God. However, if you undermine the cross of Jesus if you do not talk about it, if you dilute the power of the cross, you don't just weaken your faith, but you make a mockery of all that Jesus Christ did. So when your circumstances cause you to doubt God's love, you need to fix your eyes on Jesus once again. The one who once hung on that cross, bleeding and naked out of love for you, that same Jesus three days later rose from the dead and now he lives, he reigns, he is exalted on high. We don't worship some dead hero, but a victorious living saviour and reconciler. He is our king. He is Lord of all. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not separate he did not spare his own son, has given him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Listen, my intention this morning is not to offend you, but to warn you, to urge you to receive Jesus into your life. This was brought home to me by the simple words of my daughter many years ago, and she probably doesn't even remember this, but I've never forgotten them. One night I went upstairs to say goodnight to Rosanna. She's probably five, maybe six at the time, and she's holding a photograph of her great-granddad who died while she was a baby. 
I prayed, and then she prayed, but her words hit me hard. She said, I pray that I will see my grandparents in heaven. And in that moment, I realized how comfortable I had got with the gospel. How relaxed I'd got about friends and family members who did not know Jesus, and it didn't bother me that much. And I thought to myself, what am I doing? Who am I telling? If the gospel is truth as we believe it is, this should be shared. It should be told to everybody we meet. It should be communicated effectively so that people understand that people are warned, they're urged to find Jesus. And the message of the cross is the only way that someone will be rescued from God's judgment. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And if I love you, I want to see you in heaven. And therefore, I want to tell you. I want to urge you. We need to know Jesus. Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other you need to come to Jesus. I want to invite you this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, to come to him today. Don't put it off. Don't wait for another time or another, another day. Today is the day of salvation. So why not pray with me this morning? Let's stand together. We're going to just pray a simple prayer. Listen, if you don't know Jesus, why not just pray, maybe just quietly as I speak it out, just join with me. Lord Jesus, I am guilty of wanting my own way. I am a sinner, and I need forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for me. Thank you that you rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me and fill me with your Spirit. Please, I want to make you Lord of my life. Amen. If you've prayed that, maybe for the first time, why not come and talk to me afterwards? Or tell somebody you've come with, perhaps. But also I want to encourage you, I want to challenge us as Christians who love Jesus, who believe that there's only one way to God, that's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you about the people that you're meeting this week, about your friends and your family. I want you to begin to pray for them. You know, sometimes we don't even pray and ask God to save them. First of all, let's begin to pray for them. Secondly, let's begin to talk to them and tell them. Pray for opportunities that God, by his Spirit, would open up opportunities this week to be able to communicate the wonderful news, life-changing news, into their lives, into their hearts. So, Father, we want to pray now, Lord. Holy Spirit, just come and rest upon us. Lord, you've called us to go. Lord, it's important that we gather, Lord, to worship you, to spend time, Lord. But, but actually, part of that coming together is that we go out and we, we separate. We go to the place that you've called us to be. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, Lord, equip us for the task. 
Lead us, Lord, to the right people. Lord, give us the right words, we pray. Father, you've promised in your word, Lord, that, Lord, when we're in situations that seem difficult, Lord, that you yourself, Lord, will speak through us by your spirit, Lord. You will give us the exact words that need to be spoken. And so, Lord, we, we pray, Lord God, for just that fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit this morning. Equip us and lead us, Lord. We ask in your precious name, Lord. Amen. Amen.